If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21. Acts is the fifth book there in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we get to the book of Acts. We've been in this book for a while, hearing some of the stories of the early church. Um, And currently in this sort of latter half, we've been traveling with the Apostle Paul through the ancient world as he's announcing the kingdom of God wherever he goes. Um, Last week, we left him in Miletus, where he was meeting with the Ephesian elders. They had come down to visit with him, um, and he has said a, a tearful goodbye to them there on the beach, a very poignant scene as they knelt with him and prayed, um, and then he left. He's going to make a few quick stops in some other cities until he finally arrives in Jerusalem. That's where we're, we're heading this afternoon. And his arrival in Jerusalem marks the end of what we call the third missionary journey, the third major trip um, that Paul took. He usually left from Antioch and ended up landing back in Antioch, but his, this journey will end in Jerusalem. Uh, and then from Jerusalem, it's going to begin his, his next big journey, which is to Rome. Uh, Paul has mentioned that in chapter 19, that he resolved to get to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel and encourage the church there. And Romans tells us that his dreams were even bigger than just getting to Rome. He wanted to get to Spain. He wanted to get to the farthest reaches of the empire to tell and declare the good news about Jesus Christ. And all of this reminds us of sort of that theme verse of Acts Uh, Acts 1.8, where Jesus proclaims that the apostles are going to be witnesses, witnesses of his resurrection uh, and his death and what that accomplished. And they're going to be witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Paul is sort of spearheading that final part, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. As Luke has recorded... um, these journeys. He's giving us this historical record of how the gospel spread, but he's also, you'll remember we've been trying to say this, that he's inviting us to be a part of it. He's inviting us to join in on the never-stopping, ever-increasing, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. That this is not just past history, but this is something where we link arms with Paul and join in on this spread of the gospel to the nations. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to join in with Paul, what can we expect? What do we expect if we join in on this mission? What does it look like to be a part of the spread of God's kingdom in this world until he comes to reign as king forever? Because having right expectations is very important. It can make or break a situation. Uh, Our family, along with the Wolf family, went to Thunder over Louisville yesterday. Um, And while you never really know what's going to happen when you go to something like that, uh, it's good to have some sort of expectations about about what's going to happen. We expected that there would be a lot of walking, and that was true. Uh, We expected that um, it would probably be good to not try to feed 15 people just from food trucks. Uh, and so we didn't do that. We brought some food with us. Uh, we expected that the kids would get tired at some point, and s- most of them did. Maybe they would tell you they didn't. I don't know, but they wanted to leave um, at different points, and all of those expectations helped us to prepare right for attending this event. 
uh, we had to know what to expect and we, and we expected certain things so that we would be prepared. We measured the cost um, and took the challenge of going to Thunder of Louisville and with our expectations and a whole lot of God's grace, it went really well. We had a great time. But having uh, right expectations about going to an event like Thunder of Louisville is one thing, but what are your expectations in following Jesus and joining in on this spread of his message of the kingdom? What's it going to be like to be a member of God's kingdom and to be a part of this worldwide movement? What's it going to be like to proclaim the good news of the gospel in this world? If we're going to join in on the spread of the gospel, what can we expect? I think there are many beautiful and wonderful things to expect when we follow Jesus. Following Christ is not without joy and peace and love. The task that we've been given is a, is a wonderful gift, and it's a participation in and a partnering with God in the very reason for which he created the world. We get to be a part of that. But I'd also say that the New Testament and Jesus himself make it clear that as we follow Jesus, we should expect difficulty and suffering, not only for ourselves, but also for those that we love. That's the sort of sobering truth that I want us to think about this afternoon. As we follow Jesus, we should expect difficulty and suffering, not only for ourselves, but also for those we love. I'll say that one more time so it's clear. As we follow Jesus, we should expect difficulty and suffering, not only for ourselves, but also for those we love. That's a thought that we wouldn't call pleasant. But proper expectations are invaluable. And, and to deny the reality of difficulty is to guarantee that we're going to be crushed by difficulty when it comes. One colloquial way I've heard this said is failing to plan is planning to fail. <laughs> if you're not expecting rightly, then you're going to be crushed when it happens. Peter, in 1 Peter 4.12, he says it like this. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, when, when the trial comes, don't think, wow, this is weird. He says, no, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised at fiery trials. Another way to say that is expect them. Expect difficulty. As we consider the reality of, of difficulty and suffering on the narrow path of, of following Jesus, you could be here wondering why in the world you would join Jesus on that kind of a journey if it's just going to be suffering. And I hope that God's word can help us to process that, to process that it's only in losing our lives for the sake of Jesus that we're going to really find them. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus who's struggling with the thought that, that following Christ could bring struggles and difficulty into your life. Or maybe you're frustrated or you're angry or maybe you're even scared at the difficulty that obedience to Christ could bring into the life of people that you love. Those are hard things to process. But I hope that Paul's experience and his resolve here in Acts 21 will help us to sort of wrestle with this thought that as we follow Jesus, we should expect difficulty and suffering, not only for ourselves, but also for those that we love. Let's read in Acts chapter 21. I want to read verses 1 through 17. Acts 21, 
beginning in verse 1. And when we, remember Luke is now part of this, uh, the, the crew that's traveling with Paul, and when we had parted from them, that's the Ephesian elders, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And, the, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mnason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Now, before we consider the the suffering that was predicted for Paul and how that speaks into our own walks with Christ. Just take a moment and look at verse 16 and think about this dear man, Manasin. This is the only place he's ever mentioned in the New Testament. And he's identified simply as Paul's host in Jerusalem. But I just take a moment, and we've pointed this out a few times, but he reminds us again of the support team that was around Paul and his companions. And as I thought about this brother, this man who'd, who'd been a disciple for a long time, it says he was an early disciple, um, I was struck by the fact that, that Manasin's hospitality is sort of the tip of the iceberg when you start thinking about Paul's journey and all the meals and the beds and the hospitality that was shown to him in all of his Journeys. Have you ever thought about how many different people had extended hospitality to Paul so that he could take these trips? At each of his stops, in all of his journeys, Paul relied on the generosity and the hospitality of others. And while he, he often worked, he said, to provide for his own needs, he was also blessed by the love that others showed him, including guys like Manasin and like Philip. Philip, who was one of the church's first deacons, one of the, the seven and also an evangelist. 
We said last week that there, there was a deep, genuine, and practical love that was found in the early church. And that's true of the true church everywhere. It's a love that says it's more blessed to give than receive. A love that opens our homes, that opens our cupboards, that opens our hearts to anyone and everyone who names the name of Christ. In our trips to the Philippines, we've seen this love because we travel around and we rely on the hospitality of others. And you can talk to those that have come along. I don't think anyone exemplifies that more than Pastor Morales and his wife, Lelaine, in Rojas. They always welcome us with open arms and they provide food and hospitality in more ways than I think I could ever count. And so I would just, again, I think we've said this before, but don't despise the gift of hospitality. Don't despise opening up your home to small group, opening up your home to people that are traveling through town. Uh, many of you do this, and I just want to encourage you to keep doing it. There's a blessing that comes. There's a blessing that comes with these practical, tangible, edible gifts that you give to people in hospitality. And don't assume that you'll ever get too big for that. Here's an evangelist, one of the first deacons in the church, and an early disciple that didn't think hospitality was below them. Rather, they saw it as a wonderful way to serve others. And I think we will too. And you'll serve others and you'll find yourself sitting back when all is said and done. And you'll say, you know, call me crazy, but I think Jesus was right that it's more blessed to give than receive. That's what hospitality teaches us. Well, back to the start of this passage uh, in verse 1, we see this, this journey that Luke's been describing, and it goes um, south of Miletus. I've got the map here again for you. We've been all over the place, and, and this is tiny, um, but you can see where Miletus is, hopefully, right there. Uh, just look below Asia, Thyatira, Ephesus. There's Miletus. That's where we were last week. Um, and, and Luke mentions a lot of different cities, but eventually we get down here and make the long uh, boat trip across to Tyre. Tyre's over here. If you see Palestine, then you're going to look north. You see Tyre, and then there's Ptolemais and Caesarea. And that's sort of the, the journey that, that um, Luke describes for us here. Um, it's in Tyre that they stay for seven days, and in Caesarea they stay for many days at Philip's house. And it's in those two places that we're given details. So if you remember last time, Luke described lots of different places and two places he gave some detail. Same thing sort of happens in this chapter. They're all over the place, but we have um, some snapshots in Tyre and in Caesarea about what's going on. And we're shown that, that all along this, this whole journey, everywhere they go, even back to, to when he was traveling in Macedonia, what we find is that the Spirit is telling Paul through people, through his own understanding, he, the Spirit is saying difficulty and suffering and opposition are awaiting you in Jerusalem. When you get to Jerusalem, it's going to be hard. We saw this mentioned in Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. If you look back at Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, it says this. Paul says, And behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's what's going on in verse 4. His friends are urging him not, verse 4, chapter 21, his friends are urging him not to go to, to Jerusalem because of what awaits him. That's what uh, Agabus is clearly communicating in his theatrical prediction 
Uh, in verse 11, it recalls Isaiah and Ezekiel, how they would do these kind of things so that were physical representations of what was going to happen. It's what, I don't know if this is what happened, but these uh, four prophetic daughters of Philip are mentioned. And I just assume that they, they may have said something about this as well, prophesied to Paul that something was going to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. And what's common in, in all of this is that the Spirit is making these things very clear. And what the Spirit is making clear will happen, the people around Paul don't want to happen. The Holy Spirit is saying over and over and over again that difficulty and suffering await Paul. And everywhere he goes, he gets this message. Verse 4 seems to be a bit confusing. It says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It sounds as if the Spirit is saying, don't go to Jerusalem. But it's probably that the Spirit is saying to Paul through them, um, that it doesn't seem that the Spirit is saying, don't go. Rather, the message is, suffering awaits you in Jerusalem. And it's Paul's friends, these people who love and care for him, who are saying, don't go, Paul. Don't go suffer. It's his friends who are weeping and pleading with him to stay. And yet their counsel to not go to Jerusalem, from what we know about the rest of the book of Acts, goes against God's plan. Paul had to get to Jerusalem so that he could get arrested and get to Rome. That's what had to happen. We'll think about this a little bit more in a minute, but you, you might be making the connection that there are parallels between Paul and Jesus. You're probably thinking about that, especially on this Palm Sunday, as they're both taking these journeys to Jerusalem with full knowledge of the opposition that's going to be there. Both of them urged by their friends not to go, both determined to go because that's what God has called them to do. But before we think about that a little bit more, just consider a couple of practical applications that I think we can draw thinking about this suffering and thinking a little bit deeper about the passage. These are, are flowing from what's going on here and also from this main idea that as we follow Jesus, we should expect difficulty and suffering not only for ourselves, but for those we love. The first would be this. Be careful about the counsel you give. Be careful about the counsel that you give to others. I don't know that I would say it was wrong of Paul's friends to urge him not to go to Jerusalem. That'd be a strong statement. Maybe you want to say that. I don't want to say that. Um, I think it's natural to not want those that we love to suffer. We're, we're more likely, in fact, probably to embrace our own suffering than to embrace the suffering of those that we love. That's not to say that God's different. I don't think God wanted Paul to suffer in Jerusalem. I don't think that God said, yes, make him go to Jerusalem and suffer. Something can actually be God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem and suffer while not being something that God desires, which is a really difficult thought that I'm just going to state and now move on. We can talk about it more. But uh, we've hinted at this, that, that, that suffering is going to come because of the forces of evil in this world, because of the world and the flesh and the devil. Difficulty and suffering is inevitable in, in this world. And if we expect difficulty for ourselves and those we love, then as we counsel people, we have to consider the potential for suffering 
is not a sign that that's something that is against God's will. In, in other words, if we see someone going down a path and we say, that's going to lead to difficulty, the fact that it's going to lead to difficulty doesn't mean that that's not what God wants them to do. Here's the problem. The natural bent of our hearts and the message of the world is safety. What do you say when someone's leaving your house? Drive safe. <laughs> Be safe. We want to find safe places and we want to be secure. We don't want to be reckless. I don't think that's the point here. But we also know that our personal safety is not the most important thing in God's safety, in God's kingdom. Your personal safety is not the most important thing in God's kingdom. But often we give counsel and advice to others just as anyone else in this world would. Stay safe. Stay secure. Don't take any risks. And so the application is, on your way home today, drive recklessly. That's not the point, right? That's not right. The point is that, that as we consider how we counsel others, we should be careful that our love for them and our desire to protect them doesn't come in contrast with what might be God's plan for them. I don't know. We just need to be careful. That's, that's the counsel. Be careful about how we give counsel. This is true for, for all people, the people that we love most, for our friends, for our loved ones, for our children. As people talk to us about the, the neighborhood they want to move into or the country they want to go that they feel the Spirit is leading them into or the work that God is calling them to do or the, the budget that the Spirit wants them to live on or the people that the Spirit is calling them to minister to, let's be wise and kingdom-minded about the kind of advice we give. That we don't inadvertently, because of our love for them and our desire for them to be safe and secure and preserved, that we keep them from listening to God's will. Be careful about the counsel you give. And Paul models this kingdom-first mindset for us. That leads to our second application. The first is be careful about the counsel you give. The second is resolve to follow the Spirit wherever he leads. Resolve to follow the Spirit wherever he leads. That kind of resolve stems from, from what we truly value. And the scary thing is that we are often told to value the opposite of what the kingdom values. We're to think primarily, we're told, of our own good and our own goals and our own preservation of our own lives. We assume that, that, that living for God means success. Living for God means self-actualization. Living for God means prosperity and a lack of suffering. But the Spirit leads us to value other things. Could those things come as we follow God? Certainly. But that's not what we value most. The Spirit leads us to value other things. And I want to give you uh, three points made up of four G's of things that we should value. I would love to tell you that this is about some sort of like 4G living, you know, and give you a cell phone related thought. Um, but I'm not that creative and I think it'd be totally cheesy, so I don't want to do it. Um, but maybe just me saying 4G will allow this to stick in your head and then sink into your hearts and then work into our hands and feet this week. So as we look at Paul and as he's resolved to follow the Spirit, which is, this is, this is clear in verses, in, in 20, 24 and 21, 13. 
And so I want to look at those two verses and then think about these, these four G's that, that Paul valued that shaped how he made decisions in his life. So 2024, it's an amazing verse in the middle of his um, speech to the Ephesian elders. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. You hear that? That's a strong statement, isn't it? I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then look in chapter 21, verse 13, his response when they tell him not to go. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What did Paul value? What drove his life? And how can we learn how to value the same things and let them drive our decisions in our lives? The first thing he valued was the good of others. The good of others. This is implicit in the, in the text, especially found in the address that he gives to the Ephesian elders from last week. Uh, Paul speaks of his life and, and ministry among the Ephesians, and he shows how he daily laid down his life so that men and the men and women of Ephesus could know Christ and grow in the grace of God. He says in chapter 20, verse 19, that he did it with humility and tears, and he did it in trials. In verse 20, he says that he never shrunk, he never shied away from declaring and teaching the word of God. 3 and 35, he says that he worked hard amongst them, and and was was never seeking his own gain, but was seeking to be a blessing to them. He was working for their good. And it was this, this self-sacrificing kind of leadership and love that he called the Ephesian elders to. And it's the mark of a spirit-led follower of Jesus to look out for the good of others first above ourselves. We talked about that a lot last week, so just take a moment and reflect on that. When you think about what you value most, what shapes the decisions that you make, do you value your own good, your own prosperity and peace and comfort above everyone else? Or do you live a life of sacrificial love that believes it's more blessed to give than receive? Giving is difficult. Giving brings suffering and pain. It's going to mean hardship sometimes. But the follower of Jesus expects that, expects suffering. And even in expecting that, in, in thinking about the good of others, embraces it and goes to that place. As followers of Jesus, we can expect that the Spirit might lead us to lay down our lives in different ways. Not for our own good, but for the good of others. Is our life shaped by seeking out our own good or by seeking for the good of others? That's what shaped Paul. That's why he was willing to go to Jerusalem. So the first G is the good of others. The second G, the spread of the gospel. The spread of the gospel. What is Paul's great concern? To complete the mission given to him by God of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It's to proclaim the good news in Jerusalem and everywhere else even at the threat of his life. This ties in with a, a love for the good of others, doesn't it? Because the greatest good that we can do for another person is to tell them of the eternal life and forgiveness of sins 
that can be found in Jesus Christ. And so Paul was committed to spreading that message no matter what it might cost him. Just pause and remind you that's the message we proclaim as a church. And so I want to proclaim it to you this morning. It's the good news. It's the good news that starts out as really bad news. The bad news that we're all sinners and we're under God's just wrath and judgment. That we've failed to keep God's law. That we've failed to live a life of perfection. That God has called us to. And that He's going to judge us because of our rebellion and sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has sent Christ to live the life of perfection that we could not and to die in our place and take the penalty that we deserve upon Himself. And because of what Christ has done, God doesn't ask us to do anything except repent and believe, to turn from our sins and trust that Jesus can give us His righteousness and Jesus has died for our forgiveness so that we can stand before God on Judgment Day cleansed from sin and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's the best news in the world. And if you've never known the forgiveness of sins or the new life in Christ, I invite you to find life in Christ this morning. But if you have, then your life and my life should be shaped by desire to see that good news spread. No matter how difficult it might be. No matter what it might cost us no matter how embarrassed it might make us, no matter what we have to set aside to do it? Are we living our lives with the goal of seeing the gospel spread in whatever aspect or whatever area of life we find ourselves in? Or have we placed our own goals and our own aspirations and our own desires above God's desire for the gospel to spread to all nations? Are we willing to lay those things down? to forsake those things, our own goals and our own desires so that we can join in on God's desire to see the gospel spread. So Paul's focused on the good of others. He's focused on the spread of the gospel. That shapes and drives him. And finally, two G's for the price of one point, the glory of God. That's how we got to four. Because nobody likes three G anymore, right? You got to have four. So the glory of God. <laughs> This is clear in chapter 20, verse 24, that his life is not what he values. And chapter 21, verse 13, he says that because of that, he is willing to die for the name and for the glory of Jesus. Not valuing our own name will allow us to live for God's name and God's glory. And it'll make us even willing to die for the sake of his name and his fame and his gospel. Who are you living for? Who's number one in your heart and your mind? When you wake up in the morning, whose goals shape the way that you plan your day? When you fall asleep at night, what goals define success for that day? Are you living for you or are you living for Jesus? To live for the glory of God is to have our concern for recognition and accolades and prestige fade away more and more and more and to have our desire for the world to praise God as King and Lord and Savior for that to grow ever more in our lives. This is what Paul lived for. So obvious, isn't it? And he learned it from Jesus. 
For following Paul, we're doing it because Paul followed Jesus, who laid down his life for the good of others, the spread of the gospel and the glory of the Father. Again, I mentioned those parallels between Paul and Jesus. They're so clear. And Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, it runs so parallel. You could do a study, I'm sure, and find the parallels. Uh, But John Stott summarizes it well for us. Here's what he says in his commentary. Like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples. Like Jesus, he was oppressed by hostile Jews who plotted against his life. Like Jesus, he made or received three successive predictions of his passion or sufferings, including his being handed over to the Gentiles. Like Jesus, he declared his readiness to lay down his life. Like Jesus, he was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it. Like Jesus, he expressed his abandonment to the will of God. Even if some of these details are not to be pressed, Luke surely intends his readers to envisage Paul as following in his master's footsteps when he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And if we're going to follow Jesus the way Paul followed Jesus, then we have to expect that difficulty and suffering will come, not only for us, but also for those that we love. Paul wanted to help his companions understand this, understand why he had this resolve, why he was so focused on this. And the result was that in verse 14, they they got it. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 21 They say, we couldn't persuade him, so we stopped talking and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. When we embrace that suffering and difficult can be a part of God's plan for us in this world, and when we value the good of others and the spread of the gospel and the glory of God above everything else, then we can write over our lives, whatever's coming and whatever's happening, whatever the Spirit calls us into, we can say, Let the will of the Lord be done. And we can write over the lives of those that we love when we're scared about what they're stepping into or what might come. We can say with confidence, let the will of the Lord be done. It's not an easy thing to do always. It's not a simple thing to do. Jesus himself wrestled with God in the garden. He saw there was no other way. He had to be in Jerusalem. And being committed to the eternal good of his sheep, being committed to the inauguration of the gospel, being committed to the ever-increasing glory of his Father, he said what? Not my will, but yours be done. And so on this Palm Sunday, we're entering into this time of, of remembering Christ's death and his resurrection. We're remembering how he came into Jerusalem and seemed to be so well received and yet soon the crowds would call for him to be crucified and so as we walk with him into Jerusalem to be rejected and tried and crucified let's remember that Christ has also called us to count the cost and to follow him to Jerusalem and that we should not be surprised that the path of following Christ is sometimes hard and sometimes difficult sometimes might cost us our very lives. But let's also remember the promise. What does Jesus say? That whoever would lose their life for his sake would find it. That it's in dying that we live. And that living for the glory of God 
will truly bring our lives meaning and purpose because that's what we're created for. And so by God's grace and through His Spirit, I would invite you to think about what it would mean to write over our hearts and over the hearts of all that we love. Let the will of the Lord be done. Whatever that means, whatever difficulty might come to ourselves, if we value the good of others, if we value the spread of the gospel, if we want to see God glorified, then whatever He leads us into, we will be content. And we will find joy even in that. And we can say, let the will of the Lord be done.